Good evening, church family. It's a great joy to end off the Lord's Day together. Uh, and as we have been praying, uh, let's ask the Lord again. Well, we're praying now, now again, but let's quickly turn to our passage, uh, Mark 14, uh, looking at the latter part of the chapter uh, from verse 43 onwards. Uh, last week we were in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a difficult and dark passage, and we're still there. Uh, last week we saw Jesus' anguish there in the garden, and this evening we're looking at his arrest, uh, which is followed by the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and then Peter's denial. Uh, let's quickly read our passage, and then I do want to ask and pray that the Lord help us again. This is God's Word. Let's hear it. And immediately while he was still talking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with them with the coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the gods received him with many blows. 
And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Only so far in the reading of God's word may we form our lives to a truth. I know we've prayed, but let's pray again and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, as we remember and reflect upon the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see how He suffered, how He endured this affliction, how he was abandoned and afflicted. We do pray, dear Lord, that we do not take for granted all that he had had to endure. We pray that this passage, as dark and as disturbing as it is, that it would have its effect in our lives through your grace. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, illuminate these passages so that we would understand all that you have to teach us, and so that we would live rightly before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. O oh, to grace, O oh, to grace, how a great debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Use my heart, O take it and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You no doubt know that beautiful song, that's the third stanza of that beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written by 22-year-old Robert Robertson in the year 1758, two years after his conversion. And it's a beautiful hymn because it magnifies the overabundant blessings of God's grace. But it also highlights the very real danger of wandering away from God. And for that reason, may I suggest to you, although it's a beautiful hymn, it's a terribly sad hymn. Why do I say so? Well, evidence would suggest that Robertson didn't end well. In the last five years of his life, he became exceptionally critical and dismissive of Orthodox Christians, to the point that his last sermon was preached in a church that denied the Trinity. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Knowing how Robertson ended gives greater depths to those words, doesn't it? 
See, come now, found of every blessing is a beautiful hymn that encourages us with God's grace. But it's also a terribly sad hymn that warns us against our own proneness to wonder and abandon our God. Now, what does that have to do with our passage? Well, everything. In our passage, we find a, a terribly sad event. Here we see Jesus, the, the beloved Son of God, the friend of sinners. We see here how he's betrayed, how he's abandoned and accused and victimized. And this is a terribly sad and dark passage that exposes the weakness and the wickedness of the human heart. And as such, it warns us of our own proneness to leave and abandon the Lord our God. Our passage, however, is also beautiful. It's beautiful because despite being abandoned and denied and blind and abused, despite all the evil that was afflicted on him, Jesus stood firm. It's a beautiful passage because it exposes us and reminds us again of his steadfastness, of his unwaywardness, of his courage. And therefore, it not only warns us against our own wandering, but encourages us with Jesus' faithfulness. Now, to understand this and see all of this, let's consider our passage. I've got a five-pointer for you this evening. The first thing I want you to see this evening is a betrayer's deceit. A betrayer's deceit. In verse 43 to 49, we see Jesus' arrest. We see a crowd surround him, armed to the teeth. They come with clubs and swords, as if Jesus is some kind of violent rebel. But what should stand out for us isn't merely this crowd that comes to take hold of Jesus. No, what stands out is the betrayal and deception of Judas. Here we have Judas, and although we already know it, the text tells us and reminds us that he's one of the twelve, verse 43. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's been with him for three years, and more than that, he's a friend of Jesus. In Matthew's account of this event, Jesus calls Judas friend. And how does this friend of Jesus treat Jesus? Well, he betrays him with a kiss. He betrays him with a kiss. Now, a kiss in the ancient world was often one way of greeting. It was a way of paying homage and showing respect. And Judas does that. He puts forward this veneer of respect. He, he greets Jesus by saying, Rabbi, an honorific title of respect. But, Jesus, but Judas doesn't merely put forward this, this veneer of respect. It's far worse than that. He puts this veneer of love before us. Uh, the Greek word there for kissing, katafelio, uh, means to kiss with a show of affection. It means to, to kiss, kiss lavishly and, and passionately. Uh, we find that word in Luke 7, 38. Do you remember that passage where that sinful woman comes to Jesus? She's forgiven of all her sin. She falls at his feet, weeping, washing his feet with her hair. She kisses his feet, same word. Oh, Luke 15, 20, the father of the prodigal son sees his son. He, he runs, he embraces him, kisses him. Same word. 
Or remember Acts 20, 37, as the Ephesian elders say goodbye to Paul, the beloved Paul, they embrace him, they weep over him, and they kiss him. Same word. See, this word describes an act of love, deep love and affection. Yet here we see, as James Edwards says, an act of love that is performed with a mission of hate. Dear friends, the deception of Judas, the betrayer, offers a sad warning to us. It's easy to look down on him as that awful son of perdition who betrays the Lord of glory, but realize his life and example is sad. Here's a man who, who personally knew Jesus. Here's a man who heard all that Jesus said, who saw all his miracles. Here's a man who was exposed to the love and the care of Jesus. Yet here's a man whose heart began to love the world to such a degree that his heart was filled with Satan himself. How easy it is to start following Jesus, yet slowly but surely fall away from him. How easy it is to, to, to put up a veneer of love and affection for Jesus, yet have your heart deceitfully and sinfully love self. How, how easy it is to express love for Jesus, yet betray him with other lovers. That Judas, dear friends, dear beloved of God, is a warning a warning of how easy it is to fall in love with this world and neglect the lover of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, and even betray Him. But there's another thing I want you to see, not just the betrayer's deceit. I want you to see a disciple's desertion. As Jesus is arrested, we see that His disciples resist. John 18.10 even tells us that Peter who lops off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. And even though Mark mentions that event, he, he's not really concerned with that. No, it seems to be that Mark, despite Mark's concern is that despite their initial show of loyalty, all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him. As we saw last week in the fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7, the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. The word there, all, is in the emphatic in the Greek. It, it points our attention back to verse 23 and 31. In those passages, verse 23, we see that all the disciples drank the cup with Jesus. In verse 31, all the disciples swore that they will die with Jesus. Yet now verse 50 tells us, on the very same night, all of the disciples flee. All of them desert him. Now, now why have I titled this point, a disciple, singular desertion, and not the disciples, plural desertion? Well, because of verse 51 and 52. Having just mentioned that, that all the disciples flee, Mark here very strangely records for us the first account of the first streaker in the Bible. We're told of this young man who, who, who is taken or grabbed by the crowd and he leaves his cloak behind and he flees away naked. 
Now commentators scratch their head. They ask the question, who is this man? And the popular opinion is that many think that this is Mark himself. As a young man, he's perhaps uh, anonymously referring to himself. Now we don't know. It's not explicit. I'm persuaded, however, with another explanation. The question shouldn't be, who is this? The question should be, why is he even mentioned? See, Mark records this event to communicate the extent to which Jesus is abandoned by his disciples. Whether it's the famous disciples like Peter and John or James, or whether it's this unknown disciple, all of his disciples abandon him. That's why this incident follows verse 50. Uh, listen to R.T. France, the one commentator. He says this, the ignominious flight of this anonymous sympathizer serves in the narrative context to underline the complete failure of Jesus' friends to support him when the, 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 the moment came. There's even perhaps a, a reference here to Amos 2.6. Uh, there it says, even the most courageous of warriors will flee naked on that day, the day of the Lord. An apt description, don't you think, of the disciples. Despite all their bravery, all their vows to die with Christ, all of them flee like cowards. And so realize this singular Disciple who deserts Jesus is, is really a picture of the plural disciples, all of whom abandoned Christ. And what effect should that have on us? I love this comment by James Edwards. He offers a helpful insight. He says this when describing this young man. He says, his lack of identity also invites the readers to examine their own readiness to abandon Jesus. In other words, uh, this incident of this young man is, is recorded and challenges us with this question. Will we also abandon Jesus when things get tough? Will we also desert Jesus when, when as a disciple things get difficult? Will we run away naked and leave our confession of Christ behind? See, if Judas is an example of how we can betray Jesus for the love of this world, then this young disciple is an example of how we can desert Jesus for the fear of this world. Dear friends, how willing are you to stand for Jesus? Young adults, youth, when the pressure is on from your friends and your family, are you willing to stand for Christ? Or will you be like this young man who, who flees for whatever it takes? And so note in the second place, a disciple's desertion. Thirdly, uh, let's see an enemy's devilry. An enemy's devilry. In verse 55 to 59, we have displayed for us the malice, the enmity, or what I've called the, the devilry of Jesus' enemies. In all honesty, uh, Devil is the only word I could get to match my alliteration, but it matches the text. Uh, devil refers to the wicked and malicious behavior wherein a person pursues their own evil intentions. And that's what we see in our text. Here we expose to men who wanted one thing and one thing only, and that is to destroy Christ. Uh, note three things about this trial. This trial was illegal. 
Uh, why was it illegal? Uh, well, many reasons could be given. Just three. Firstly, it was illegal because it was held at night. A Jewish custom held that trials, especially for capital crimes, had to be during the daytime. It's illegal also because it was over Passover. Again, Jewish custom held that a trial could not happen before the Sabbath or over a Jewish festival. And also it was illegal because at the high priest's villa, and again, the custom meeting place for the Sanhedrin was in the temple. And so from the start, this is an illegal trial. But not only was it illegal, it's inconsistent. God's law required that two or three consistent testimonies were required to make a valid judgment. Yet in this illegal trial, no testimony agrees with another. In fact, the point is made in verse 56 and 59 that no testimony against Jesus aligns. And not only does, do these testimonies not align, they bring multiple false witnesses against Christ. In verse 58, one witness says, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands and in three days build another. Now that's from John 2, 19. But Jesus didn't say that he will destroy the temple. See, they're twisting his words. And so see, we not, only, not only do we see inconsistent testimonies, but we see false testimonies brought against Jesus. And the picture we're meant to see is that Jesus' enemies... The picture being painted is that, is that they will short-circuit judicial procedures. They will, they will break and ignore the law. They will stack up false testimonies. They will do whatever they can to get rid of Christ. Which reveals at the end of the day how this trial is a display of injustice. I mean, just look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus. Why? To, to pursue justice? To vindicate the truth? To expose error? No, they were seeking testimony to put him to death. Uh, that word seeking speaks of a continual effort. It indicates a, a devilish zeal to get re rid of Jesus. Uh, quite rightly, do we see the, the enemy's devilry. They want nothing else but to get rid of him. Now, what's the point in highlighting all of this? Why highlight the illegality and inconsistency and injustice of Israel? Why, why are we exposed to the devilry of Jesus' enemies? Well, one reason is this year we see the lengths to which sinners will go to rid themselves of Christ and his authority. Here we see that sinners will do whatever they can to dismiss Christ and to disregard him in their lives. Perhaps you're an unbeliever here tonight. You haven't really come to faith in Christ. You're just going through the emotions. You're just here with a friend, perhaps, or family. And like these religious leaders, you will go to whatever lengths. You will say and trumpet any charges to avoid Christ in your life. So that you don't have to deal with him. So that you can dismiss him as some unloving or uncaring person who has no relevancy for your life. But, but, but again, we mustn't look down on these religious leaders in their devilry, uh, we mustn't think that they are more sinful than we. No, no, the same evil heart that was in them dwells within us by nature. 
Uh, realize, in this kangaroo trial, we see the truth of John 3.19. And this is the judgment, John says. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. See, that, that's the judgment call that the Bible makes about us. That's the judgment call it makes about who you were, dear believer. And that's the call it makes upon who you are, dear unbeliever. The question is, will you own it? Will you recognize this sinful tendency to dismiss Christ? Will, will you be honest with yourself and admit that often you don't want Christ because you don't want anything to do with it? You want something else. You want self. You want this world. So far then, we've looked at the betrayer's deceit who fell in love with this world, a disciple's desertion as he, uh, in, in fear of this world, and an enemy's devilry as they exposed or uh, opposed Christ. In the fourth place, uh, consider with me a friend's denial, uh, a friend's denial. After Peter abandons Jesus in the garden, we see that his courage returns to him very briefly because he follows Jesus again to the high priest's villa. Now, the way that Mark describes it is, is quite interesting. He mentions the presence of the chief priests and, and then the elders and then the scribes and, and then Peter, strangely enough. The word there for sitting, he describes Peter sitting with the gods. That word sitting, he describes one who, who personally associates with another. As one commentator says, Peter is acting like one of the gods. Another says he's making himself at home with these gods. I don't know what's Mark trying to do. Not only is Mark aligning Peter with Jesus' enemies, but he's tying Peter's denial to Jesus' trial. The implication is this. Mark wants us to see that Jesus and Peter both are on trial here. Uh, one commentator again says, Jesus and Peter come to the place of their testing and trial, and the outcome is clear. G uh, Peter fails. Not once, not twice, but three times he repudiates and renounces Jesus. Uh, remember that in the garden, we saw how Peter fell three times to watch and pray. Well, here we see the results. He falls into temptation, he falls to pressure, and he ends up denying the Savior. In fact, on the third occasion, he actually invokes a curse. Now, the Greek doesn't specify the object of the curse. Either he's invoking it on himself, like the ESV says, or, as some commentators say, he's invoking it on Christ. He's cursing Christ, even. Now, whichever way it is, here we see a man who once boldly declared, you are the Christ. Remember John 8? Yet now that same man says, I do not know this man. Dear friends, how feeble the human heart, how deceitful, how weak, how wavering, how easy it is to confess Christ with our mouth, yet end up denying Him with those same lips or even with our lives. 
And don't miss the connection with Jesus' trial. Jesus' trial and Peter's denial happen at the same time. Inside the high priest's villa, Jesus is under fire. False witness of the false witness is brought against him. Yet outside the high priest's villa, Peter is relaxing and warming himself at the fire. And instead of bearing witness to who Jesus is, he denies him. And again, that challenges me. I wonder how often are we not perhaps like Peter? False witnesses of Christ abound in this world. Yet we who have the truth remain silent. I found this hymn by A.B. Simpson that I ought, ought to be, that ought to be a challenge for each of us. It's called, What Will You Do With Jesus? Listen to the second and the fourth stanza. He says there, Jesus is standing on trial still. You can be false to him, to him if you will. You can be faithful through good or ill. What will you do with Jesus? Will you, like Peter, your Lord deny? Or will you scorn from his foes to fly? Daring for Jesus to live or die, what will you do with Jesus? I suppose in a sense that's the question of our passage. What will you and I do with Jesus? Will you and I be like Judas who, who deceives and betray and reveal ourselves to be fake disciples? Will you and I be like this naked disciple who deserts him, a, a, a fleeing disciple? Will we be like Peter, a friend, yet we shamefully deny him a forsaking disciple? Or will you be no disciple at all because you're like this religious leaders, you despise Christ if you're honest? Or perhaps I can simplify the question, will we relate to Jesus with unbelief like Judas and these religious leaders, or will we relate to Jesus with unfaithfulness like Peter and the other disciples. Now, I'm on, I'll be honest, I ask those questions knowing the answer. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have failed Jesus. That's why I entitled this passage, this message, When We Abandoned Jesus. See, the people we see in this passage are a picture of all of us. All of us, in one time or another, have been faithless to Him. Or unfaithful to him. I, I know my own heart. How many times have, have I not betrayed Jesus by, by loving this world? How many times have I not deserted him when trouble abounds? How many times have I not suppressed the truth for my own ends? How many times have I not denied him, not merely with my lips, but even with my life? Uh, dear, dear friends, I know my heart. I've often abandoned Jesus. I've often wandered away from him. And the question is, do you know your heart? Surely you can echo those words. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave a God I love. See, this passage is a warning to every single one of us of our own heart's tendencies to abandon Jesus, either in unbelief or unfaithfulness. That's how this passage warns us. I said earlier this passage encourages how? It encourages us because while we proved unfaithful, Jesus proves faithful. 
That's the concluding point I want you to see. A Savior's dedication. A Savior's dedication. Uh, Jesus' child doesn't quite go according to plan. Uh, Witness after witness is brought in and nothing sticks. And to make it worse, Jesus remains silent throughout. And so with a touch of desperation, uh, the high priest Percy gets involved in verse 50 onward, 60 onwards, and he cuts through all the deception, and he asks the key question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 61. Now, now throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus veiled his identity with secrecy, and yet here he, he removes the veil completely. The high priest is simply asking him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, and a little more. Also, because Jesus not just says that he's the Messiah, he says that he's divine, the divine son of God. Just look at verse 62. He starts and says, I am, in the Greek, eguaimi. Uh, that, in my opinion, is a clear reference to the divine name of God. Throughout Isaiah, God identifies himself as ego I me, I am. And yet Jesus quite firmly affirms this. He, he addresses, he answers that question that way. And to make sure we get the point, he continues and said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Now, that's a citation from Psalm 110, verse 1. And it's essentially a claim to, to have the authority and the honor of God. You see, to sit at the right hand of God is to sit beside God in a place of authority and honor. Jesus is claiming to hold a divine position beside God. But if that isn't bold enough, he goes on and says, you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's drawn from Daniel 7, 12. And the idea of coming on the clouds shouts again, not only of divine authority, but of divine judgment. And so Jesus isn't just claiming you to, to hold a divine position. He's claiming to hold a divine prerogative. And what's that prerogative? To judge the living and the dead. And there's a tinge of irony here, right? The, the judge is being judged by these false judges. Jesus is saying, you're judging me? Well, I will judge you. Now, what's Jesus doing? He's not only revealing who he is. He's playing right into their hands. See, they want any reason to kill him, and Jesus gives it to them. Why? Because that's what he came to do. According to the definite plan of God, Jesus is killed at the hands of evil men so that fallen men like you and me can be reconciled to God. And how is that an encouragement? Because when we proved unfaithful in our calling, Jesus proved faithful in his. Because he was faithful even enduring evil, we can have hope. Because he fulfilled his calling, we can be saved. See, we've abandoned him. We've sinned. We've been unfaithful. And therefore, we deserve to be condemned to death. Yet he is condemned to death. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've sought our own way. But instead of that iniquity being placed on us, it's put on him. And he frees us of our sin. He saves us from our iniquity. He, he cures us from our waywardness. 
And the encouragement is this for you and me. For those of us struggling with unfaithfulness, for, for those of us needing to be motivated to persevere, for, for those of us being crushed by our repeated failures, the good news is this, Jesus was faithful for the unfaithful. He pure, proved true even when we were false. I shared A. B. Simpson's hymn earlier. I didn't read you the chorus. Here it is. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday, someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Dear friends, may I suggest to you, if you stop trusting in your own efforts, your own works to save you, if you stop putting your faith in your faithfulness and you start relying on Jesus' faithfulness, if you start going to Him, pleading for His forgiveness, asking Him to give you strength, then that last question is changed. You no longer will ask, what will He do with me? The question will become, what has He done for me? And the answer that the cross gives is that he was faithful for you when you were unfaithful. He was obedient when we, you were disobedient. And, and therefore there is salvation and hope in no one else but Christ. And the result of understanding this reality of Christ's work for us on the cross is twofold. I've shared it before. I'll say it again and again. Jesus becomes not only our pardon, but he becomes our power. He's, our, he's the, the pardon we need for our forgiveness, uh, for our faithlessness, sorry. He's the, the, the forgiveness that we need for all our sin, for all our waywardness. But he's also the power we need to reignite and reinvigorate our faithfulness to him. Think about it. Isn't Peter the perfect example of Christ's power and pardon for a sinner? Besides for Jesus, there's no greater failure in the book of Mark than Peter. Here's a man who confessed Christ, who, who vowed to, to stay with him, yet he denied him. Grievously so. Yet he is forgiven, and the rest of Scripture tells us that he proved faithful to the end. How so? Because of the work of Christ. Christ being our power and our pardon. And dear friend, have you sinned like Peter? Have you failed to follow and obey Jesus? Have you felt that proneness to wander away from God? Take heart, if Jesus pardoned a failure like Peter... If Jesus made his power perfect in Peter's weakness, then he can pardon you and he can pour his power in your life. And therefore, trust him. Look to his faithfulness. Rely upon him. In your faithfulness, set your hope on your faithful Savior. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul would tell us, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Although he failed, and, and perhaps because he failed, Robertson's hymn should be our continual prayer. Jesus sought me, he says, when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood, 
Oh, to grace, how a great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. And use the prayer. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. To thee. Dear friends, dear beloved, will you not make that your prayer? As we face challenges and difficulties and the loves of this world, pray that God's Christ's grace would bind your heart to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and thank you for the beauty of it and even the, the hideousness of it as it exposes our own sin, as it reveals our wickedness. Thank you that you reveal all of this to drive us again to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we think about Christ and his abandonment, how he was betrayed, how he was denied, how he was abused and victimized. Dear Lord, help us to see our own sinfulness there. But help us to also see Christ's grace, how he endured all that pain, all that horror, all that shame for a sinner like me and, a sinner, and sinners like us. Help us to rest in his faithfulness. Help us to rejoice in his steadfastness. And help us even in the day, in the here and now, to persevere, to keep our eyes on Him, to walk before Him by His power and His strength. We ask this all in His beautiful and marvelous name. Amen.